Welcome to Beyond the Lines. I'm your host, Jason Davis. You can follow this podcast on Facebook at Beyond the Lines Podcast, Instagram, Beyond the Lines Podcast, and also on Twitter at underscore Beyond the Lines. This episode is sponsored by Samified Crafts. If you're looking for that unique and special gift for a birthday, holiday, wedding, or any other event, go to SamifiedCraftsShop.com. They are your one-stop shop for all your gift needs. They specialize in custom gifts at an affordable price. Not only will you find the great gift ideas on SamifiedCraftsShop.com, you'll also find all of your Beyond Alliance podcast t-shirts, tank tops, water bottles, and backpacks. So go to SamifiedCraftsShop.com to order your merchandise and gifts. You can also follow them on Facebook at Samified Crafts. This is episode number 19. Today, I'll be discussing a very serious yet often misunderstood topic with one of the most knowledgeable and prominent neuroscientists and researchers on this matter. This episode's focus is on concussions and brain trauma. My guest today has a BS in kinesiology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She has a PhD in anatomy and neurobiology from Boston University School of Medicine. She's a certified and licensed athletic trainer. Currently, she's a clinical associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She taught human anatomy and neuroscience to medical, dental, undergraduate, and graduate students at both Boston University and the University of Wisconsin. She was the first to publish research on the long-term consequences of repetitive impacts in youth sports, and she continues to study brain trauma in youth sports. She received a National Research Service Award from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and stroke for her doctoral research on the long-term consequences of repetitive impacts in youth sports, as well as an award from the Journal of Athletic Training for her research on pressures on clinicians to prematurely return athletes to play after concussion. Finally, she's a neuroscientist, anatomist, researcher, sports lover, and author of the book, The Brain on Youth Sports. If anyone is qualified to discuss concussions and brain trauma, it's my guest. Dr. Stam, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. So I've been a physical therapist assistant for 19 years. I've coached youth sports for over 10 years, and I've taken a few concussion courses. Two years ago, my oldest son went through the concussion protocol. So I felt like I was well-versed in this whole concussion matter and repetitive brain trauma until I read your book. I realize that there's so much more to know, understand, and research when it comes to this concussion matter. Out of hundreds of athletes that you work with at the University of Wisconsin, many who become professional athletes or even Olympians, it was a high school football player that got your interest in studying concussions. Talk a little bit about that experience and what prompted you to write the book. Yeah, so I was really interested in continuing on with school and I wanted to study something sports medicine related, but I didn't really know what I wanted to study. And this one patient was a high school football player, and he wasn't an all-star. He just wanted to play the sport with his friends, and he had a concussion. And it didn't seem that bad to start with, which is a thing with concussions. You know, you may have somebody who looks really severe right away, and they recover very quickly, and someone else may not recover as quickly, even though it doesn't look so bad. And this particular patient didn't recover very quickly at all. It was about three or four months later when I left that clinical rotation and he was still struggling. It impacted academics. It impacted sports, of course, but also just friendships. And it was really hard to watch that. 
That really piqued my interest in studying the brain in sports and concussions. And then I went on to study, as you said, at, at Boston University and study CTE and the long-term consequences of these repetitive head impacts. And I love sports so much, and it was something that I felt really compelled to study to try to do something about it because I think every kid should have the chance to play sports without any of these consequences. And I wrote the book to talk about that, and I felt like there were a lot of myths out there about repetitive impacts in sports and concussions, and a lot of extremes, too. People saying, don't play sports at all, it's not safe. And other people saying, well, we don't know everything, so we know nothing, so just keep going. And really, the truth is somewhere in the middle, and I wanted to bring that to parents and coaches and others involved in youth sports. Great. Uh, and I agree with you. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think there should be and can be a happy medium or common ground where we can kind of come together, allow these kids to be able to participate in sports, but yet do it in a safe manner. So I agree with you. There's a lot of information that we want to unpack today. So let's kind of get into that. So for those who aren't sure, explain what a concussion is. A concussion is a brain injury and it happens from a blow to the head or a blow to the body. So a blow to the body that causes the head to move back and forth can cause a concussion too. And it's any time you've had an impact like that that results in symptoms really for any amount of time. We used to think if the symptoms just went away after 15 minutes, then the athlete was fine. But we know now that if you have those symptoms at all, it's a sign that something's going on in the brain. And those symptoms can include things like confusion, difficulty remembering things, sensitivity to light or noise, nausea or vomiting, and sometimes overlooked symptoms can be emotionality, so really strong emotions, maybe crying more than you would expect, things like that. And also lack of sleep. It can be a lack of sleep or it can be too much sleep, really just some impairments or differences with sleep can also be symptoms that might happen. And we used to also think that just getting your bell rung or seeing stars was fine, but now we know that those symptoms happen because something's happening in your brain. So we do consider those to be concussions as well. You mentioned some of the symptoms, and one of the things that I've read in your book, and, and I've heard it as well, is that it's not a concussion unless someone goes unconscious. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a really common myth that still sometimes for us that are in the field, we think, oh, we've known this for a while, but it's still really commonly thought that you have to lose consciousness to have a concussion. And that's not the case. We had somewhere between about 13 to 19% of coaches that were surveyed in different studies that still believe too that you need to lose consciousness and you don't have to lose consciousness. Actually, only about 10% of concussions results in a loss of consciousness. So that's definitely a myth. Just any of those symptoms I mentioned for any amount of time after a blow would still be considered a concussion. And where do some of these myths like losing consciousness come from? I think it's really historically based in how we didn't really consider brain injuries to be as serious. They're invisible injuries. We can't see them like we can see a broken leg or a bruise, but there's something going on in the brain, and, and they are also easier to hide because they're invisible injuries. In some cases, we can't hide them. We maybe have more severe symptoms, but in other cases, an athlete can just pretend that they're feeling fine, which is definitely not a good thing to do. And for years, we used to think that, oh, if we just give them smelling salts, they'll be fine. And we didn't see the long-term consequences of that until now when we're starting to see people diagnosed with CTE or we're starting to see some of these long-term consequences. We also sometimes didn't link things that were happening later in life, CTE or otherwise, to concussions that happened when people were younger. We're only now starting to realize that. Okay. And could you explain for us what CTE means? 
Yeah, so CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And that's a disease that's been diagnosed, you may have heard of it, in former NFL players, but also hockey players, rugby players, boxers, and other people who are exposed to repetitive brain trauma. Really, your brain doesn't know what hits it. But really, that key piece is repetitive brain trauma. So you're not going to get that from one concussion or even just a couple of concussions generally. But that repetitive trauma over time can lead to this disease that causes a lot of different symptoms, emotional, mood symptoms, behavioral symptoms, and ultimately would lead to death. It can lead to cognitive symptoms similar to Alzheimer's disease as well. So it's something that we're starting to see more commonly, particularly in older individuals who had had a lot of exposure to repetitive brain trauma. I think you would agree that there's a lot more research that needs to be done when it comes to concussions and repetitive brain trauma. So how can a balance of getting the proper and accurate information out to the public, parents, coaches, and even athletes, yet allow the athletes to participate in their particular sport safely, be achieved when sound fundamental testing takes at least a decade or more? Yeah, and that's really a very challenging piece of this puzzle. There has been so much research that's gone into this area, especially over the last decade or two. And there's still so much that we don't understand. Really, we just have to do the best we can with what we have now and keep studying and keep researching. And I think it's really important to err on the side of caution. You get one brain. That's it. Right. And your brain controls everything you do, all of your thoughts, your personality, everything that you do. So we need to protect it. And I think it's very important that we keep every opportunity for kids to play sports, but just alter those sports in a way that's going to protect the brain as much as possible. There's so much, as you already said, there's so much in the media, on TV and social media when it comes to concussions, CTE, repetitive brain trauma, and those things like that. So there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of correct information. There's a lot of myths out there. So how can parents, coaches, and even athletes take any of the information or studies concerning concussions or repetitive brain trauma serious when different organizations, associations, and sports are manipulating the evidence to benefit their bottom line? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really hard. That's in great part why I wrote the book, because I wanted to try to clear some of that up and say, what do we really know? And what don't we know? What do we need to find out? Looking for scientific resources, which still can be very confusing at times. Looking at things like how many people were studied. There are media articles that came out talking about a way to diagnose chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE and saying that we can diagnose it now during life and and we can't. We can only diagnose it after someone passes away right now. But that was based on a study of five people. So that's not enough people to really know that we can diagnose. Right. So kind of looking for some of those details. And also there are some great scientists that are on social media and you can follow me on social media. There are a lot of other scientists too that We'll go on and do excellent explanations of these studies. And so if you're somebody who's really trying to kind of search for that, I actually think social media can be a place that's full of misinformation, but it can also be a place to find great information as well. I think also if it's an extreme, it's probably an extreme and it's probably not true. Right. So looking for that middle ground and reading everything very cautiously is also very important. Yeah, one of the things I've heard, and I've also read this quite often, is researchers and neuroscientists and others are out to get sports like football and lacrosse and things like that. And certainly, you know, I I know enough to know that that's not true. So how do neuroscientists and researchers and doctors such as yourself fight that myth that you guys are trying to shut down or ban sports when, in fact, you guys are advocating for kids to play sports, but do it more in a safe and healthy manner? Yeah, so the introduction to my book, 
I talk about my story and how I got here and how I was a three-sport athlete and sports were a huge part of my life growing up. And I did that because of this reason, because I think that sometimes we're just looked at as people in labs who don't understand sports and don't know what we're really talking about when it comes to the culture of sports. Almost every single person I worked with at the CTE Center in Boston, we were athletes, whether that's high school athletes, college athletes. And if we weren't athletes, the others were avid sports fans. So we definitely understand sports and we want to save these sports. You know, I grew up watching the Packers and uh, I'm a Dolphins fan in Packer country, but I you know, still love the Packers. But I want to watch the NFL and feel good about it. And I want to watch my Wisconsin Badgers and feel good about it. (laughs) That's a myth that we just don't understand. We're doing this because we want to save these sports and enjoy these sports along with everybody else. Okay, and you mentioned that you're a three-sport athlete. So as an athlete yourself, well, so you recognize many the many benefits of participating in sports. I could go on sports. and on on this what are some one, of those but benefits? there's physical benefits. So physical activity is so important. And when you develop physical activity uh, habits as a child, you're much more likely to carry that into adulthood. And so that's really important as one benefit. There are psychological and emotional and benefits that come from it as well having people that you can rely on on a team and that can support you both on and off the field that has huge emotional benefits for children. And then the life skills, learning work ethic, determination, grit. Grit is so important. And learning how to win with humility and being humble and winning and learning how to lose because you're never going to win everything in life, right? That's absolutely true. Absolutely. And I think that grit in particular, too, that I mentioned is something that can really carry you through a lot of difficult times in life. So there are so many incredible benefits to sports. We want kids to play sports. Right. And obviously there's that health benefit to it when kids are participating in sports or or playing different things. And obviously, you know, that goes without saying. But as reading your book, and this is something I wasn't aware of, but in reference to the CDC recommendation for children and adolescents between the ages of 6 and 17 to get at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity each day, how can children who play sports such as baseball, softball, football meet those goals in those sports when they're more or less stop and go type sports, unlike sports such as soccer, basketball and track and field? I'm so glad that you asked that question and brought this up. I think that sometimes there's this idea that kids just go to practice and they get the physical activity for the day, but that's not true for some of these sports that really involve a lot more um, taking turns or stop and go, like you mentioned. So it's really important for coaches to make sure that they're incorporating activities that will raise your heart rate and get these kids moving. Maybe that's You play catch for a little bit in softball or baseball, and then you do, even if it's a game that involves some sort of non-sport related game that involves running and getting your heart rate up, things like that, making it fun while also getting that cardio. That's really important. And same with football, maybe you're doing a drill that's more stand in place, and then you alternate that with drills that get your heart rate up. So you really have to be intentional about that. And then parents can also keep that in mind and encourage maybe you get done with practice and you go for a bike ride or doing something that involves getting your heart rate up if it's not happening necessarily in that practice. I was a coach for 10 years and I coached youth athletes. And so I was guilty of that thinking, you know, and as parents, I'm sure would agree that your kid is out there whether soccer practice or football, whatever it is. Okay. They're on the team. They're out there on the field. So they're getting physical activity, but not thinking if they're just standing or watching, 
they're really not getting that physical activity that the CDC recommends. So we kind of lose sight of the fact that, yeah, they're out there on the field, but they're not doing anything. So they're really not getting that activity. Yeah. And I was really surprised as I was researching this, learning about that too. And even your average NFL football game has about nine to 13 minutes of actual play. Mm -hmm. Like That's astonishing to me because you're watching a three hour game. But there's so much time in between plays and all that. So it is really important to make that conscious effort. And of course, standing up and walking around a little bit on the field is better than just sitting on the couch. But you really want to get that heart rate up to get the most benefit for the heart and lungs and all that. Right. And also the, uh, the increased blood flow to the brain is really important for your developing brain too. So that's another big one. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, because that was going to kind of be my next question. I read in the book where sort of that sweet spot for kids, that eight to 12 year old range. And when we're talking about repetitive brain trauma, I mean, and even younger than eight years old, they're developing and they have these repetitive body blows, whether it's an actual tackle or if it's a blow to the head, obviously. So talk a little bit about the developing brain and how that affects kids when they're actually are developing. Yeah. So there's so much going on in the brain of a child and even into a teenager. That 8 to 12 range is a sweet spot where there just happens to be a lot going on in a lot of different parts of the brain. But different parts of the brain reach peaks at different times. So some structures might continue into even into young adulthood, while others really kind of peak at that 8 to 12 range. So it's important that we keep that in mind when we're thinking about all of these repetitive impacts and about concussions because that process can be disrupted potentially. And that's not just with things like repetitive head impacts. We see this with lead poisoning, for example, emotional trauma. It's just that we haven't really thought about it with sports until recently and repetitive trauma in sports. And some of the research that I've done with my colleagues at Boston University, we found that there were differences in certain structures in the brain in those who played during that 8 to 12 range. And that those structures were worse off, essentially, in people who were older. So we were looking at former NFL players and saw those differences based on when they started playing. But we could see those differences years later. We also found differences in depression rates, apathy, executive functions. And that means things like planning, decision-making, judgment were worse off in those who were repeatedly hitting their head when they were in that 8 to 12 range. So... It does seem that there may be some consequences. We may not see those consequences until they're older, but it does seem that there could be something we're disrupting with these repetitive impacts. So I mentioned the actual tackle or body blows that can also cause concussions. And I think as coaches, parents, we don't really think about an actual tackle that doesn't necessarily, quote, involve the head causing a concussion. But can you delve into that a little bit and talk about how an actual tackle can cause the concussion? Because what I understand it to be is also is like a coup counter coup uh, where the brain kind of goes forward or sideways and then goes backwards, goes the opposite mm-hmm. direction. So I'm assuming that a tackle can cause that sort of injury. Absolutely. And we think of concussions and we think of those big hits that we see, helmet to helmet blows, but a blow to the body that causes the head to move back and forth or even just to fall, even if you don't hit your head, that causes the head to move back and forth causes that coup and contra coup, meaning you have the coup injury being where you're actually hit. So if you had damage to the brain, for example, at the same spot where the hit occurred, but then your brain is going to move within the skull. So if you had a hit to the front of the head, your brain will hit against the back of your skull and that can cause a concussion too. And there's a structure that runs right between the two hemispheres. We have a right and left side of our brain and we have a structure that runs between it. 
And it's a really good thing. It's there to help stabilize the brain. But when the brain's moving in the skull, part of the brain can hit against that structure, part of it pulls away, and that causes some straining on the pathways that are connecting our hemispheres. And that can also cause a lot of disruption because those pathways are where we're sending signals. And if we disrupt those signals, we can lead to many of the symptoms that we talked about with the concussion. So the brain simply moving within the skull, especially with rotation, that can be even worse. So we think of the straight head-on impacts, but as the head is turning, the brain is rotating in the skull, and that can even be more likely to lead to a concussion. Right. So it's not just as simple as those straightforward blows. Okay. I know that football gets the the most attention when it comes to concussions, brain injuries, and things like that because it's a popular sport, and that's where most of the studies have been done. But when it comes to concussions and repetitive brain trauma, talk a little bit about some of the other sports that have just as concerning statistics, such as hockey, lacrosse, soccer, wrestling, and even cheerleading. Yeah, hockey and girls' soccer, most of the studies show that football has the highest rates But the next ones, or the few studies that show a different sport, it's going to be hockey and girls' soccer. That would be the next closest. Hockey, you know, there are a lot of collisions, checking, things like that. So that's the sport that maybe more people would think of as being higher risk. Girls' soccer, though, it's not just headers. It's two people going for a header and then hitting each other's heads. That's a big cause of concussions in soccer. So that and then falls as well with, with soccer. That's the biggest sport for girls. Cheerleading is another one for girls in particular. Yes. You think about stunts that are being performed and potential for falling, and many cheerleading squads are practicing in cafeterias or places where they don't have good mats or good support underneath their feet. So if they fall, they're going to hit something very hard. Right. So, and that's, you know, unfortunately a sport that sometimes ends up just being pushed aside a little bit and into some of those facilities that they don't have quite the proper equipment. But wrestling, you know, is another sport with throws that can be a high risk. Rugby is becoming a lot more popular in the U.S. in recent years, and that's also a sport with a high risk. So it's definitely not just football. Right. Any sport that tackles or checks is going to be one lacrosse being another one. And then sports that involve falls or, of course, using your head to hit a ball will be one that will be high risk. Does the research show that girls' soccer has more incidence of concussions than men's soccer? The coming together and the collision, men do the same thing. So are the women more likely to sustain a concussion than the men? And if so, why? Yeah, so actually any match sport with with similar rules between males and females, females have a higher concussion risk. So whether that's soccer or basketball or another sport like softball versus baseball, And we don't really know why exactly that is, but there are some theories. One being that women may be, or girls may be more likely to report the injury. I don't know that that's necessarily true because there are studies that show that it's not the case. Um, There are studies that show, for example, one study showed that women's soccer players were a lot less likely to report. Sometimes you have that cultural aspect that women feel like they have to live up to a certain expectation, so they go even further to portray that toughness. Right. So that's one theory, but I'm not entirely sure that I buy that theory. Other theories have to do with neck strength or just overall body strength, Mm -hmm. and that when you're hit, Your neck muscles and and your core muscles all kind of work together to stabilize you and then stabilize your head. And if you're not stabilizing your head, your head is going to move back and forth faster, causing more force on your brain. Mm -hmm. So that is one theory as to why both younger athletes and females 
are more likely to end up with a concussion. And then there may be other physiological differences and hormonal differences between males and females that also lead to an increased risk. So why should parents of youth athletes uh, playing sports be concerned? I think that there's definitely reason for concern, but there's also reason for hope and reason to play these sports. I think that sometimes there's too much concern about things like CTE with just one concussion. And as I mentioned earlier, a child getting one concussion is not going to lead to CTE. That's one thing that we are confident in saying right now. But we should be concerned about just hitting our heads repeatedly in general. And I think about you wouldn't be comfortable with a child hitting their head against a wall 150, 200 times over a couple of weeks. Why was that okay on a football field, right? Or in hockey or in a soccer field. Right. So I think we want to do everything we can to protect the brain. And there is reason for concern. But really, if a child has a concussion and they manage that concussion correctly, they get off the field right away, they go through the proper return to play protocols, then they are very likely to heal relatively quickly from that concussion. Most athletes will have full and relatively quick recovery within a month or so at most. So management's really important, but most people are going to recover well. With the repetitive impacts, if we just limit those as much as possible, I advocate for eliminating them at the youth level or the sources of those repetitive impacts, and then limiting as much as possible at the older levels. Mm -hmm. The risk of long-term consequences are really pretty low there as well. So there's definitely reason for concern, but there's also steps we can take to help prevent any of these consequences. Right. I certainly agree with you. And I think a lot of the leagues, and I think you mentioned this in the book as well, are trying to go to less contact versions of their sport, such as in football, the kids are at a younger age are playing flag football before they can actually get into tackle football. And they've eliminated some of those younger age groups from playing tackle football. And as they get older, then they can matriculate into the, the actual tackle. But a lot of them are starting off in the flag level. So I think a lot of leagues are starting to do that. And you mentioned in the book, I agree with it, that it's still not enough. It's a step in the right direction but there still needs to be more done. And I think also that comes along with, okay, we can do more, we want to do more, but where's the science leading us? Where's the research leading us? We want this information, we need this information, but it's hard to take these steps without really knowing if what we're doing is really helping not only short-term, but long-term. So we're taking steps, but we don't know how much we can take and make sure we're doing the right things. Absolutely, and some of these things that we're doing now, trying to make long-term differences, we can't possibly know for 30, 40, 50 years, but we have to do the best we can with, with what we have. And I think erring on the side of protecting the brain is, is the way to go with that. I think there have been a lot of great changes. So hockey has eliminated checking before age 13, and their numbers have actually gone up considerably since they made that rule change. So more people are getting into the sport after that rule change was made, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. Soccer eliminated heading before age 11 and limited that to age 13 as well. Okay. Football is, has eliminated the tackling at some younger levels, but you can still get into it pretty early. And it's really kind of city dependent or area dependent as to whether or not you have access to flag football, especially as athletes get older. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see flag go to at least around seventh grade, if not high school. And I think there is definitely opportunity to incorporate tackling-based skills earlier, but doing it in a way where you're maybe not taking the opponent to the ground or you're using a tackling dummy, something like that, where you can start to bring that in, but phase it in slowly. And I think USA Football came out with the American Development Model, and there is so much good in that model. 
But nowhere in that model does it say when it's okay to start tackling. Right. And I think it's for a reason, but (laughs) they want to see kids playing the sport. But I think there's a lot of opportunity to grow the game if you incorporate more flag or, or things like tackle bar where there's two bars attached to the back. And you practice wrapping up the individual, but you pull off the bars instead of taking them to the ground. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different forms of football that are starting to emerge that kind of blend different aspects or different types of the game. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to play and learn so much about the game without those repetitive impacts for kids. I think the other thing, too, is once you get to high school, many states have laws now that are limiting full contact time, which is awesome. That's a, a good thing. But the studies have shown that if the coach just wants to pack all those same hits into a short amount of time, you might end up hitting your head more. Mm. So while it can be a great thing, it's also coach dependent and the culture of that team. Right. And athlete dependent. Some athletes will do everything they can to get their head into every play, which is great. But sometimes you have to protect them from themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think that culture that's established by the coaching staff, it can be a really important piece of this as well in protecting the brains of their players. Yeah, I agree with you. And again, you mentioned that in the book. And I've seen that live where the rules have changed. And I've seen at the youth level where they are packing more hitting, more tackling into the same amount of time or less time than they were when it was before the rule changed. And I agree, that's just adding more hits, more concussions, more injuries on these youth athletes. And it can be a dangerous way to go. Absolutely. And also the enforcement, right? If there's nobody enforcing these time limits, then there are people who are going to abuse that and who are just going to say, well, I'm going to hit anyway. So it's really on coaching staffs to adhere to that and really do what they can to protect their brains. And I think it's also important for parents to just ask questions and be wary. Don't, it's in the book too, don't be that parent, right? right that one right, that's right. on exactly. the coach all the time, that kind of thing. But you want to have an idea of like, are the coaches really promoting a safe environment for your athlete and for their brain. So that's a really important thing. And one other thing I want to mention is that there are a lot of examples of teams that have been really successful without hitting. There's high school in Florida, high school in New Jersey, where they basically don't tackle at all during the season at all, hardly at all, and a little bit in the preseason. And they've won state championships in recent years. There are a lot of examples of successful programs that aren't tackling And that also not only prevents concussions, but prevents other injuries. So it's keeping your athletes fresh so they're ready for game day. I completely agree with you. So I know you've heard this before. My son plays other sports. He plays in the backyard. He gets hurt. So how different is it him being out here on the football field? If he's going to play tackle with his brother or his friends in the backyard, might as well bring him out to the field. So explain why the common argument that other sports are dangerous too is a bad one. Multiple things can be dangerous at the same time, right? Right. I think that while they're doing this, it can be dangerous. You know, I hear that with biking a lot. Like, well, they're riding bikes; they can get a concussion riding their bike. Right. Well, sure, they can, but they're not all. They're not repetitively hitting their head every time they go on a bike ride. I hope not. Anyway, so to say that well, they hurt somewhere else, that doesn't mean that we have to intentionally subject them to repetitive impacts, right? We can still try to make it safer, and we're not wrapping kids in bubble wrap. We're not going to prevent everything, of course. But we can prevent those things that are inherent to a certain type of game. So if we remove tackling, you're going to remove repetitive impacts. And it's not removing football. It's just removing the tackling piece for younger athletes. And to say, well, girls soccer is dangerous too. Again, we should be doing everything we can to prevent those impacts and concussions in girls soccer too. Right. right? We can work to make all of these safer. And backyard games are going to happen 
but hopefully we're not doing that every day and incurring hundreds of impacts over a season's worth of time. And, you know, let's also just talk to your kid about how important it is to protect their brain, even if they're out playing football in the backyard. So that conversation is important for parents, too. Absolutely. I I completely agree with you. Uh, A minute ago, you talked about the culture. So when it comes to transforming the sports culture surrounding concussions and brain trauma, why do you think that's so imperative? And what steps do you suggest to begin that transformation? Yeah, the research shows that athletes don't want to report concussions. They don't want to come out of the game. They don't want to let their teammates down or their coaches down or their parents down. Especially the bigger the game, the less likely they are to want to report. And also, athletes want to do what they think their coaches will like and what they think their coaches will support. And if they feel like their coaches won't support them in reporting a concussion, then they're not going to report. That's science to back that up along with it kind of just makes sense. So we really need to change that culture and value health because that one game might be important, but what about your career? What about school? What about your future? It's important to value kind of the long term over that one game or that one practice. And coaches really need to be supportive of that. Talk about it more than just once at the beginning of the season, how important it is to report. Applaud that athlete who took themselves out of the game and say, this person valued their brain. This is what we support on this team. And that we want everybody to play, but you also want to play your best, right? And you're probably not going to play your best if you have a brain injury. Absolutely. So that's a huge thing. And then also, you know, there's just a culture of this appreciation of violence that is pervasive throughout our culture, mm-hmm. whether that's movies or football or other sports. So that's just something that it's hard to change. There was a study that showed that football fans, their brains didn't light up their areas involved in empathy, for example, when they watched football-related violence right. compared to other violent-related images. But people who weren't football fans their brains lit up the same way for both. Mm. So we're just kind of conditioned to think that if somebody has a helmet on, then they're fine. But that cultural change will be a lot tougher, but it's, I hope it's something that we can start to value them, the athletes as people more as well. So where does that change begin? Is it at one level? Is it the player's responsibility? Is it the coach's responsibility? Or are we talking more of a societal change? Because as you mentioned, the study subjects, brains lit up differently when someone got hit hard. As you say, we're taught to really enjoy the, the violence when it comes to the sports. So is it societal change? Is it more of an organizational or a sports change? Where does that occur when we're talking about that transition? I think it's both. I think when we're watching games, we're not appreciating those hits the same way we used to. Right? We don't have ESPN segments totally devoted to the biggest hits of the week like we used to. Right. And I think that's a good step. The announcers don't applaud those kind of impacts the same way. A lot of them don't anyway, uh, the same way that they used to. So that's one way to kind of share that culture with a wider viewership. And I think the more that we change that culture at the youth level, then those athletes carry that with them into high school, into college, into adulthood as fans, as parents eventually of kids who are playing. So I think that starting it young is also very important, but it kind of has to come from both directions because If you're being taught one thing as a youth athlete on the field and then you go watch a game on Sunday and you see the opposite, you're going to want to be like the pros, right? So it really has to come from both directions and in that kind of societal way as well. I agree. I agree with you 100%. What can families, athletes, and coaches do to keep children safe in sports? So really eliminating those impacts as much as possible. 
So non-contact versions of sports for younger athletes and then slowly incorporating those contact versions as they get older. We really want our athletes to be ready to sustain those impacts. So having an eight-year-old who doesn't have a lot of muscle mass go tackle, it's not really safe for them and they're not necessarily developing the skill very well because they don't have the physical ability to develop that skill. Mm -hmm. But if you wait until they're a little bit older, stronger, they've gone through puberty, they're more athletic by the time they get there, then they're going to be able to learn that skill more easily and they're going to learn it well and be safer in the process. And then managing these concussions when they do happen is really important as well. So recognizing them, knowing what a concussion is and I think that's an important discussion to have with your athletes if you're a coach, with your child as well. Right. And really getting to know your athletes if you're a coach too. Absolutely. Parents will know their kids better than anybody. But sometimes a, a child doesn't know how to describe what a concussion is. They might be feeling something, but they don't know if, if it's normal or they don't understand how to verbalize that. So a coach who knows their athletes well or, or a parent might be the one who sees that difference in a child and says, eh, what happened today? Right. So that's important as well. And then managing those injuries correctly. If you go to a doctor, go to somebody who has training mm-hmm. in concussions. You know, not every clinician, whether doctor, nurse, or athletic trainer, for example, necessarily going to have that training in concussions. So I think it's okay to ask. Absolutely. Have you had recent training? Because this field is changing a lot too. So we used to say lie in a dark room and now we say, hey, exercise can actually be a good thing with in moderation mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't exacerbate symptoms. So going to somebody who knows this field is important as well. Right. But really the ultimate thing is you're not going to have a brain injury if you don't hit your head. So trying to avoid that as much as possible. Right. <laughs> so finally, what advice would you give to a parent, coach, or even an athlete if they believe a concussion occurred? Yeah, so... When in doubt, sit them out. So if you have any thought that a concussion may have occurred, remove that athlete from the game immediately. So that's a really important piece. There's evidence that shows recovery will be longer and there's a risk of a second concussion if you don't come out right away. And if you do sustain a second concussion, there are other consequences to that as well that will probably take a lot longer to recover. So just come out of the game right away. Athletes will recover faster if they do that. And then... Rest is best in that first that 24 hours or so. You want to limit screen time, limit a lot of other stimuli. So your kids want to play video games, they want to be on their phone, but limiting that is important just to give the brain a little bit of time to rest. Also academics. Sometimes it can be hard because some schools or some teachers don't necessarily understand concussions as well either. But communicating with the school and trying to limit academics, maybe if there's a test that day, see if you can move that, just to let their brain rest. Then there is evidence, as I mentioned, that shows that exercise can be helpful, but that means light bike ride, going for a walk. And by bike ride, I don't even mean on an actual bike. I mean like an exercise bike, a stationary bike. You don't want to do something that could lead you to hit your head again. And this should really be done under advisement of a clinician who's trained in this. But just moving a little bit can actually be really helpful because you increase blood flow to your brain. And that can help you recover more quickly as well. So talk to your clinician about that as well. And slowly incorporating academics. So working with your teachers to slowly kind of build back into school. You may need, uh, the athlete may need accommodations for a little while, maybe delays on homework, or maybe um, taking an exam in a separate room, or having a a certain seat in class where it's easier for them to focus. Things like that can go a long way to supporting an athlete as they're returning. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I mentioned earlier, my oldest son went through the concussion protocol and he went through those very things you mentioned. And he came back after three weeks, which was plenty of time for him to come back. And he did very well. So those points that you made are, are very valid. Dr. Stan, where could everyone purchase your book? Yes, you can find it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. You can go to Indie Books. There are a lot of different websites that have it online. Amazon's probably the easiest for a lot of people, but any of those sites will have it. It's called The Brain on Youth Sports. And how can people reach you or follow you if they have questions or want more information? Yeah, so my website is juliestam.com. It's with two M's, S-T-A-M-M. And you can also see links there to buy the book. And you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Julie Stam PhD. Dr. Stam, I really appreciate you being on the show. The Brain on Youth Sports is an excellent book. It's a very, very easy read. Even if you're not in the medical field, I suggest you go get it, especially if you have a youth athlete that plays any kind of sports. I certainly recommend this book. It's very, very easy to read and very easy to understand. And I think it's actually very recommended to get this to really understand what's going on. As I said before, I thought I knew enough or a lot when it came to concussion. But until I read this book, it really began to sink in and made things clear for me to understand what's going on when it comes to youth athletes and the brain situation. So I recommend all parents, all coaches, and even athletes to go and get this book. And I really thank you for being on the show. Your information was very insightful and absolutely very, very helpful. And hopefully I get to have you back on the show again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for those kind words. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, thank you for being on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Alrighty, bye. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Stam for joining the show and sharing her intellect and knowledge on this very important topic. So what are the three takeaways from today's episode? Number one, know the signs and symptoms of a concussion. Not only can a concussion occur from a direct blow to the head, but it can also occur from a tackle or even a body check. Number two, neuroscientists and researchers are looking to make the sport that our children play safer, not ban them. Let's appreciate and applaud their work. Number three, parents, coaches, and athletes, get informed, get educated by buying the book, The Brain on Youth Sports. You'll be more than happy that you did. That concludes episode number 19. If you enjoy this podcast, I ask that you subscribe. If you enjoy this episode, I ask that you share it with a friend. Please tune in next week for the next episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Take care.